The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. My name is Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. And in every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. Today, we're really uh, pleased to be joined by Barb Oakley. Uh, Barb, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me on Big Beacon, Dave. It's a pleasure to be well, here. Well, it's, it's great to have you, Barb. And I was looking back through my notes. We actually uh, contacted each other back in 2008 in connection with some work you were doing on, on ethics and personality. And then we kind of reconnected here uh, recently and... Um, uh, in in 2014, <laughs> it's been quite a while. But actually, I think it's been a a, a path that ethics and personality also leads directly to how do we learn? Because a lot of it's informed by neuroscience, and I think that's providing for tremendous breakthroughs in virtually every facet of what we know about how we learn and how we interact with one another. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the connection uh, between the personality work and the the learning work, and maybe we can uh, explore that. But we ought to uh, introduce you a little bit to our listeners. So you're an engineering prof at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. You're a best-selling author and co-teacher of one of the most popular MOOCs on the planet. But let's go back to the to your log cabin. What what early experiences led you to your current path as an engineer and uh, professor? Well, it's almost like my early experiences didn't lead me to where I am now. I I I started out I I I basically was horrible at math and science growing up. I moved all the time. My father was in the military. And so I and I was just completely convinced that there was no way I could do math or science, and so I did terribly at them. It, but I, I really liked learning language, and so there was at that time one uh, simple way to learn a language and actually get paid for it, and that was to join the Army. So I joined the Army right out of high school, and I, I did learn a language. I learned Russian and ended up working as a Russian translator up on Soviet trawlers up in the Bering Sea. But I, I, I realized uh, after a while, I realized a lot of different things. 
One was that there's not a lot of call for Russian translators. And also the West Point uh, engineers who I had worked with in the military, they had sort of careers just wide open for them. They had many different opportunities, and they also seemed to think in a way that was like much smarter in in some perspectives than how I felt I was, right? Uh, I couldn't problem solve like they could. And I began to wonder, was that their training, or was it, were they just naturally smarter? But in any case, I decided when I got out of the military at age 26 to try and see if I could start retraining my brain to learn math and science and see if I could become an engineer because I could see engineering was a, a power, opened a lot of uh, doors for you. And lo and behold, it, it actually worked. Uh, uh, but if I'd known then what I know now about how you learn effectively, I could have made my journey a lot easier. So sure. so that's, that's kind of how I ended up pointing in this direction, and uh, I am really, really glad that I did. Well, that's, that's fascinating to you know, be really lousy at math and science and then end up an engineering professor and retrain yourself. And so the things that you write about and the things that you talk about in your uh, teaching are, are from personal experience. I, I, I guess I, I'd just like to share a common cause. I got sucked into the Cold War and learning Russian back in high school as well, not uh, not uh, like you did in the army, but uh, um, yes, there isn't a, there isn't a whole lot of call. Well, maybe that'll come back uh, with the rise the rise of the former Soviet Union again. Maybe your your language training will come back and and be useful to you. But I'm I'm curious about that. You know, so that, so part of what I'm hearing in your experience in the army was that you saw these, these army officers and the what were the doors that were open to them was was there anything else about that about that experience or other experiences that that you had that sort of unleashed you to these these new possibilities was it were there experiences were there people what what was it that kind of led you in this pretty counterintuitive direction well i I, I, my brother uh, worked as a, a technician. He's a very, very talented guy. And he was telling me, oh, why don't you look into engineering? And I, I actually didn't even know what an engineer was. So that's when I really first began looking uh, more seriously at it. I think it was my brother's influence. But it, it's kind of, it's kind of funny when I look at it now because I, I have experience sort of in both worlds, in the humanities and in, the, in technology and the STEM disciplines. And I often see humanities professors encouraging people to take the humanities because they say it will really open doors, uh, you'll be able to think more broadly, and you're, you're very capable about handling um, a lot of different career paths. And... I think to some extent that that is true, but every word that I just said is actually much more applicable to uh, getting a good degree in uh, involving the STEM disciplines, particularly engineering. It Just because you have a degree in engineering doesn't mean you necessarily have to work in that discipline, but what it does mean is that you have at your fingertips 
all of the information you need to to really leap into society as it's operating today and actually be effective and make effective decisions and it's really a uh, it's a wonderful discipline. I, I can't help but think of people like Jeff Bezos, uh, who has a mechanical engineering degree. I, I think it would have been much, much more difficult for him to understand the infrastructure that helped create it, helped create Amazon, if he had had a degree in in history, for example. Um, not to say that that's not bad, but it, it just wouldn't have, have providing that, provided that encompassing uh, background in how does technology operate that Bezos really needed. So I, I, think, I think it's important today that if you, if you want to have a, um, a polymath approach to life, it's incumbent on you to get a broader background uh, in engineering-like disciplines. And, uh, and so that's what you're all about, and that's what I'm all about. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that people, it's, these discussions tend to be one-sided. You know, so the humanists say, well, the humanities are great, and uh, the STEM is narrow, and some of the STEM people say, well, that you can get a job in, in STEM, but it's, it's really about the combination these days of, of uh, like my friends at, uh, uh, at Purdue and their, their College of Technology have this new trans, uh, transdisciplinary degree. And I think that things like that are, are headed, in, headed in the right direction. It's, it's not one or the other. It's, it's really balancing the polarities of these things. And I think that actually goes to some of the things that you talk about in, in, um, in, in your work on on learning, but your journey is such an interesting one. There's so, there's so many facets to it, you know. So you you also unleashed yourself as a as a book author. You're the author of a number of books, including this work on personality and and uh, uh, as well as the book on learning. How, what uh, I guess what there, there's a certain uh, chutzpah or courage that's required to sit down and 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 uh, do a book. What uh, what led you what what you led you in that direction? I, there's just something about it that uh, I have long wanted to write, and I so I've just always sort of written on the side. There's been some years where I I couldn't when I was finishing my doctorate or the the children were really small, but mostly I have always pursued writing books on the side, and I, I think part of that is I read a book by Dean Koontz. Uh, when I was in high school, I think it was, and it was on, on writing. And one of the things he said was, don't just write short stories. Um, that's just going to kind of box you in. If you actually want to, to have people read your work, write books. So uh, I, I think he was right, actually. Um, and, of course, I'm very interested in nonfiction perspectives, of, so I, I generally write in nonfiction. But I... Uh, when I wrote, it's a, it's a tongue-in-cheek titled book, but it's, it was critically acclaimed. Stephen Pinker gave it a great blurb. The, the name of the book was Evil Genes, Why Rome Fell, Hitler Rose, and Ron Failed, yeah. and My Sister Stole My Mother's Boyfriend. 
And um, that was exploring the neuroscience of what we know behind why people can act in a malevolent fashion. And I, I think that's what really got me interested in neuroscience. But when I worked on that book, I, I just sat there in a corner for six years putting together all this research um, and trying to tell it in an interesting way that um, that really reveals a lot of the flaws that were uh, then um, seen in psychological studies. There was a kind of a refusal to acknowledge biological influences in human behavior. And uh, so I thought, gosh, this is just kind of crazy that I'm even working on this because it's completely counter to, you know, sort of what everybody knows uh, is correct today, which, of course, wasn't founded on um, our understanding of science at all. But I just kept at it, and um, and the book turned out really well and, and got a, a lot of accolades. So I guess squirreling your way into a corner for six years can work on occasion, but I was really... I really tried to reach out to people while I was doing that and say, hey, look, I'm writing about your work in this way. Am I characterizing it appropriately? And um, I think sometimes writers make the mistake of, okay, I'm going to squirrel myself away for five or ten years, and I'm going to write this massive, wonderful thing. And, of course, they don't reach out to anybody, and they don't realize that some of their stuff is really bad or wrong or anything like that. And I think being willing to reach out to others while you're working um, on your writing uh, is probably one of the most important things you can do if that's something you want to pursue. Yeah, so that's that's interesting, and so that's I mean it's counterintuitive on a couple of you know. So you're okay. So you're you know, professor of engineering, kind of wandering off into the neurosciences. Of course, that you're not supposed to do that, and and um, and then of course you're supposed to be the expert in the area, and of course you're reaching out to people in this kind of very cool kind of networking kind of area. It seems. Um, seems very modern, postmodern kind of approach to research that you that you took that um, has has enabled your success and and uh, and and again you know as I was looking at your career there's so there's this wonderful uh, you know, twists and turns and so how did you become a MOOC pioneer with you know million uh, you know over a million students on on your MOOC how did, how did you get into that business? <laughs> um. I have to give my thanks to Terence Sanowski. He is the Francis Crick Professor at the Salk Institute. And he's just, um, he's a legendary neuroscientist, but he's in real life person. He's just a wonderful human being. And I I had to give a, a talk for the National Academy of Sciences on my research. And Terry turned out to be my, my moderator. And we got to talking, and he really liked what I had presented. And he said, there's another area that is really important in this country, and that has to do with math and science education. And I said, oh, really? Well, you know, it just so happens that I'm working on a book about that. And Terry says, well, can I write the foreword? And I I was just like, well, can I just buy and go to heaven? And uh, we got to talking and thought, well, let's do a MOOC on it. And 
there was a little bit of back and forth because I wasn't a professor at UC San Diego where Terry has his appointment. I'm a professor at Oakland University. But with Daphne Caller's help, um, that was that little hurdle was overcome. And uh, so now I'm a visiting scholar at UC San Diego, and the rest is history. I think Terry and I have done a, a great job in bringing out a MOOC that that really helps a lot of people to see learning in an entirely different way than is conventionally taught when it is uh, in schools of education. Well, that, you know, that's, again, a fascinating story, and we've got a couple of minutes before we're going to head out to, to break, but I, I guess I'm curious. So, okay, we're going to be talking here in the next couple of segments about higher ed and the changes that are coming about. So what, are, what do you see as some of the big uh, trends, some of the things that are really changing in, in learning and education? Well, I don't see changes coming fast enough, to tell you the truth. So, um, but I think that Certainly, online learning is is going to be one of the areas that we see most change in, and uh, I think it it will be something that uh, that really helps students. And that's I think the bottom line. That's the most important um, thing for students. Yeah. So so I think in the last segment we're going to talk quite a bit about MOOCs and educational technology and, and the things that are, that are coming. Um, and then, you know, the other, you know, the, you know, the book that you've written about, uh, about learning, you know, it seems to me that sometimes there's a disconnect. So we've got this system that goes back to 1088 and the founding of the University of Bologna that's about faculty experts standing up and telling and, and obedient students shutting up, sitting down and, and listening. Um, but it seems to me that part of what's really interesting about uh, your work is kind of bringing that ed technology that enables that large to get the scalability, but also doing it in a way that that is respectful of of uh, how we actually learn. Just uh, you know, a few seconds and for you to comment on that, and we'll take a little break. I think that's exactly what I'm trying to do is. Um, Make it to help students learn to help themselves more effectively. And actually, what happens is professors, sometimes purposefully and sometimes not on purpose, make it so that their students are dependent on them. And they kind of want their students to be dependent on them. But that's actually not really what's best for the students as learners. Great. And I think that's Great. where MOOCs can really help. Beautiful point. And, and so let's uh, come back to that after the break. This is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Barb Oakley. We're talking about uh, MOOCs and, and the future and the transformation of higher education. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. 
David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3joy website www.3joy.com today think you've seen everything there is to see in online television let us surprise you visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports health business and more on demand 24 7 you are listening to big beacon radio if you'd like to call into the program today please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg, and our our guest, uh, Barb Oakley. Um, we urge you to get a copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education, www.wholenewengineer.org. So, Barb, in the last segment, we were, we were talking about um, uh, the interaction of students and faculty members and the ways in which there are sort of unintended consequences of how we teach and how we think we're supposed to learn. Let's let's dive into some of some of your thinking on 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 learning and and one of the first things when you dive into um, uh, into your book a mind for numbers and you look at the outline uh, for um, uh, for your MOOC uh, learning how we learn it's it's striking that you start with the distinction between focused and diffuse modes of learning what, what are those all about well. Just as a little bit of background, if you looked at my old textbooks from when I was first trying to change my brain from linguist to engineer, uh, you would see a lot of holes in those textbooks. And that's where I took my fork and I would stab the pages because I get so frustrated because I couldn't figure something out. And I, and I know that many students suffer from equivalent frustration when they're trying to learn something and they, they think they should be able to logically step through uh, what's going on and yet they can't make any headway. So this, the, the information about focused and diffuse modes of learning is to help readers and learners to become aware of the fact that we have two very different sort of modes in which our brain can operate. And one of those modes is like when you're focusing, right? So you're, you're um, just turning your straight attention to something like a multiplication problem or a, uh, you're going to integrate something and you work it through step by step. Now, this other mode of, of thinking, of perceiving, is actually, it's something I call the diffuse mode, but it actually involves, uh, we now know, is at least a couple dozen different um, neural resting states. The most well-known of those is the default mode network. And what happens is people will, um, they, they alternate between these two modes when they're thinking and when they're learning. And when you're focusing on a problem, you're on the focus mode. 
But when you get stuck, you often need to stand back, see the big picture, and attack that problem from a different angle. But you can't do that in focus mode. You can only do that with this sort of the different type of network which is available in the diffuse mode. So as long as you're focusing on the problem, you're actually blocking your ability to solve the problem because you're not allowing yourself access to these different neural pathways. So that's why the book opens up with a discussion of sort of a a metaphorical analogy that allows you to see sort of a big web versus a, a fine network web way of thinking about things and how alternating between those two different modes can get you to a solution much more effectively and without as much frustration. And that's particularly important for math and science learning. Well, you know, and I and I'm thinking about this, and 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 I love the distinction, and I think it's, I mean, I think it aligns very nicely with some of of what we, the kind of education that we thought was important. You know, guys like Dan Pink wrote a whole new mind, and he said that we were going to move from analytical to more creative, and so that's a he's talking about a shift between focus and and diffuse or or analytical and creative or what you know whatever words that we want to to use or use around them but it's it's not like one is good or the other is bad or one you know one is good for an engineer and the other is good for a humanist it's like we to be good learners and good thinkers we want to we want to balance those polarities well is that am, am i capturing some of what you're saying well what what would you add to that I think you're exactly right. And and if I would add anything, it would be this. when Particularly when we're learning something like uh, a topic in engineering, or we're studying thermodynamics, for example, we focus, 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 and we, we put relentless focus on the material. And what we don't teach our students, and what we're often unaware of, is standing back and not focusing is also very important. You, you need to have those periods where you're not focusing on, on, particularly on that topic that you're trying to learn, and sometimes not focusing on anything uh, of pointed, um, you know, that needs pointed attention. Because when you have these periods where you're not focusing, actually there's subconscious processing subconscious learning that's taking place at that time. And that is what helps you to be more creative. So that's the only thing I would add. Well, and and uh, in thinking about what you just said, I, I think sometimes the word that I, in, in coaching practice and elsewhere um, that I'll use is the word reflection. So I'll oftentimes, okay, so I'm focused, but then I'll stand back and reflect. Is is that related? Is is the neuroscience aligned with that word? Not necessarily, because... When you're reflecting, you're still, you've still got your attention on it. You actually need to get your attention completely off it in order for these other kinds of processes to start taking place. So when you're purposefully reflecting, you're still keeping those sort of, you're still strumming the same banjo chords to, to some extent. That's why have you ever noticed you'll go out for a walk or you take a shower and your mind is off it temporarily? And that's when the idea really pops up. 
that's that may solve the problem that you need to have solved. So uh, it's it's these other little interludes where you're you've got other. If I could show you here, there's actually a, a whole network that you can see that's available when you're in diffuse mode, or what I call diffuse mode, and it's a very different network than what's available sure. when you're in the focused mode. So if you want to access that different network, you've got to quit focusing on whatever you want to be focusing on. Does that make sense? So, <laughs> yeah, so no, good. Thanks for that. And so, and, and I guess I'm wondering, so has education gotten itself into a rut or has engineering education gotten itself into a rut? And to what extent um, are, are we unbalanced towards one of these poles or the other? I don't think we're unbalanced in our educational approach. I think where we're unbalanced is that professors uh, often aren't aware of how important it is to also be teaching students how to learn. So they'll just teach them the material, but they don't they're not really aware of how students can be um, not learning that material. I mean, you can present it the best way possible, but if you're not... um, Well, let me give you an example. One of my students came up to me once and showed me a test, and he goes, how could I have done so poorly on this test? I understood it when you said it in class. So this student has been hearing for what, well over a decade probably, that understanding is all he needs in order to be able to excel at the material. He's not hearing, you need to be practicing it, and and only through practice and gaining uh, procedural fluency do you truly master the material. He's just, he's, he's kind of going with what he's been told, which is erroneous, that, hey, all you have to do is understand it, and that's enough. So uh, I think uh, often I'm I'm shell-shocked at how little uh, self-awareness students have about what it really takes to learn effectively. And this is actually, uh, I think... Uh, it's our fault as educators that we have, that I would see students in their junior year of college who don't know that they actively need to be working a problem that they see in a video or that they see me do in class, that simply understanding what I'm doing as I take those steps through it is not actually enough. And students have often have shockingly low self-awareness of uh, how they learn effectively. And uh, that's something that we can make dramatic changes on relatively quickly. And so that's, of course, what learning how to learn is all about. And I think the, the sheer popularity of that course is a testimony to the fact that students themselves really want this they, they want to know how to learn effectively, and, and they feel, I think, a little starved of this information. So it's, um, I, I just have to uh, 
give my thanks to the great neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists who've started teasing out some of this information. Um, And it's a tribute to our own students how excited they are to receive it. Well, and of course, you know, we live at a time that, you know, we we say lifelong learning like a mantra, lifelong learning, lifelong learning, lifelong learning, and and yet, what does that mean? And as you as you observe, it has been largely about understanding in this kind of static, static kind of way. This the professor tells and the student masters in some sense some kind of cognitive understanding of how the material fits together, but but can't do a darn thing with it. Can can you say more about the importance of the of of the this practicing and and recalling this the, the, the idea that. Um, learning is more than than this kind of abstract understanding. Well, one thing that has shocked me in looking at pedagogical theory as it's commonly taught is there's virtually no reference to the supremely important area of chunking. Chunking, um, gaining mastery over chunks of material uh, is... Uh, has been shown to be the quintessential route towards expertise for any discipline. So, but we don't teach about that. And um, I think that part of it is because for a long time there has been uh, a dramatic... um, Educators have for very good reason, been opposed to the idea of memorization because memorization was misused. Um, Education turned solely into a game of memorization, and it didn't really matter whether you could do anything with the material. But then educators kind of went in and threw the baby out with the bathwater and said, well, then memorization's never important for learning. Mm. And that actually isn't true at all. And if now, particularly in math and science, that's where students actually suffer. If you look, like I, I have a very good overview with our, what, we've got well over a million students in our Learning How to Learn MOOC and from over 200 countries around the world. And if you look, even in the United States, at professors um, in the engineering disciplines, they often come from areas where memorization is still considered to be important. In other words, it sure didn't hurt their knowledge and ability to gain expertise in the discipline to have memorized. In fact, it seems to have been sort of a sin qua non. It's very helpful for gaining expertise, particularly in engineering. I think one of the big problems in the United States today is that we've we've thrown out that idea that memorization is important or that, that it can be a valuable adjunct in learning about things. Let's say you talk to a poet. A poet might say, and I've heard this frequently from poets, memorize the poem and you will understand it more deeply. But why should we let all the poets have all the fun, right? Uh, I mean, it actually helps our students to memorize equations because then they understand those equations more deeply. Sure, will some of them just do it? 
Yeah, but they will actually learn those understand and understand and think about things like, oh, why does M multiply by A instead of divide by A? They'll think about those things when they're memorizing. So chunking, yeah. indeed, is an important aspect of learning that's, that's just almost ignored by modern pedagogy. And I, I've heard from countless students that that was a, an important missing key for them. You know, it's, an inter- you know, it's interesting in, say, the performing arts. Nobody tells a poet or a, a theater major or, to, or a, a dance major or a music major not to memorize their part. And then as those people become deeper and deeper and deeper in um, those movements that become automatic, as you say, they, they understand them deeply. Why, why doesn't that same logic apply? And, and in many ways, uh, in the book, you argue that, that uh, when it comes to taking tests, all these things are performance, performance arts. So there's, there's good reason there. We've got a, another couple of minutes before we uh, um, take, take a break, but I'm, uh, I'd like to touch on, on one subject in your book that you spent a fair amount of time on, and that is the, the connection between procrastination and some of these ideas. Oh, and that is incredibly important. See, this is another aspect that uh, modern pedagogy often doesn't connect with, um, with learning more effectively. Um, we'll often see uh, excellent books and in, insight into how do you learn more effectively given to students, but they don't couple that with you, you need to handle procrastination if you're actually going to use some of these ideas. Um, in other words, learning is often involves building a, uh, a neural scaffold, and just like building a muscular scaffold when you're working out, it takes time to do that. So yeah. if you're trying to build that scaffold at the last minute before um, the evening before a big test, that's like going out for a big run the night before a marathon. So, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't work very yeah. well. So procrastination is a big deal. Well, and and I think you know, and you 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 make I think the terrific point. You say it very well that if you if you need both diffuse thinking where you need some space and time and and the and the focus thinking both that the only stuff that you've got uh, time left for if you're a procrastinator is the focus thinking and that's just not um, that's just not going to um, get the the job done. Uh, exactly. We're going to take a little. Um, uh, break now, and after the break, I want to come back and and pick up on some of these ideas, and then ca- connect them to this whole experience of of doing the MOOCs and what do MOOCs mean for the transformation of learning. We've got a, mo- a lot of MOOC skeptics out in the audience, and and uh, so we want to tap into your experience both on learning and the MOOCs. This is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Barb Oakley, and and uh, in the next segment, we're gonna we're gonna dive into the topic of MOOCs. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. 
David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg, and, and our special guest, Barb Oakley. Uh, get the coaching and deep faculty development you need to transform higher education at www.3joy.com. So, Barb, in the last segment, we were mainly talking about uh, about your about your book and the content of your of your MOOC, um, your massive open online course. Uh, and um, back in and, and and MOOCs have become sort of a controversial topic, and a lot of um, a lot of angst poured into talking about the pros and cons of MOOCs. But back in 94, I wrote a paper about change in engineering education, and I talked about the coming Oprah Winfrey and Phil Donahue of learning. And I guess I'm talking to the Oprah Winfrey of, of engineering education on, on the other side <laughs> of the line here. But I guess uh, what, what's been your experience with, with MOOCs? Well, one reason I think it, it's kind of funny. When I look at some of the naysaying about MOOCs, it's often written by people who have no technological expertise. So they, they put on their, their sort of description of what MOOCs are like. You can see from there that, A, they've never taken a MOOC, and B, they don't understand the technology behind MOOCs, and C, they don't really understand... Uh, technology enough to really know how truly creative it can be for people. So uh, it's almost like I, I've I've heard people say, "Oh gosh, um, the uh, you know, Gutenberg Bible and that whole mechanized revolution—it was just terrible. Everything was the same." And it's like, "Well, wait a minute now, wait." The Gutenberg Bible is now generally acknowledged as absolutely a brilliant artistic masterpiece. So I I think there's actually a lot of artistry in MOOCs. Um, Okay, I'm going to say something that um, it it does make me laugh. Sometimes I, I can't tell you how often I will hear from professors, you know, I just never watch television. And there's always this kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm above that, right? <laughs> and what's funny is that television is actually one of the most creative mediums in the world today. I mean, there is just extraordinary artistry going on. 
And I think MOOCs likewise uh, provide for an extraordinary way to reach out and, and through an artistic mechanism that uh, is just unparalleled today that we can't actually do or uh, in a classroom. And what I mean by that is, for example, when we use metaphor, we are actually neurally reusing the exact same circuits that would be used for us to understand um, a, a concept in engineering. When we say that uh, electron flow is like water flow, it, we're saying it's like it, but our understanding is actually predicated upon what's going on in those neural circuits that help us understand water flow. So that's how we understand electricity flow. So, so at any rate, what I'm really getting at is when I do a MOOC, I can actually have these wonderful images of, of, of metaphor, and I can walk right through them on the screen, and I can point out things, and I can do all of this in ways, in brief, witty snippets that appeal directly to a student's um, understanding without any wasted time, um, but also keeps them kind of very interested because there's little hooks in there to keep them interested. And if they need to take a break, they can do it because it's just five minutes, right? It's not like the typical classroom, which is really not how the brain works. I mean, we're just not designed to go for an hour and a half or two hours uh, focusing relentlessly on a person who's just standing there and drawing some things on the board. So MOOCs are, they're, they're, they're terrific. Are they a 100% answer for everything? No, nothing is. But they're actually a great, great um, way to not only start getting students to start thinking and learning on their own, but also do it in a dynamic um, way that helps them to think more creatively. Sure. Well, so I'm, I'm hearing... So I think I heard of three different pieces in your argument um, for MOOCs. One is that um, the technology and and the um, uh, the delivery system allow uh, allow creativity to go in. It's a new medium, and so it's um, it's calling on a different kind of creativity. And and people like you are exercising that creative creativity. Another thing I heard you say was, well, okay, so students. Um, you know, we're not talking about an hour and a half lecture anymore. Usually we're talking about if, there, if there's a lecture component to the MOOC, it's shorter and it's more tuned with our normal attention span so we can, we can match the attention span of the lecture uh, to the student. Um, and and, and then, then the other thing you're saying is that you're calling out good lecturing. And I've never, uh, unlike some of my friends in the active learning and project-based learning community, I've never been a lecture basher. I've always enjoyed good lectures, it's the lousy ones that I don't much care to, care to listen to. So if we've got good lectures and we match to human time scales um, and, we, and we put creativity into them, um, um, MOOCs can, can be a good thing. And so MOOCs do focus on this kind of telling and, and, and uh, 
in what ways is this this positive or negative? You know, there's this passivity to to um, to to being told. Uh, in in what ways is 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 that a, a a good thing or not? In MOOCs, you have to actively go and watch those videos, and you have to do it not binge watching right at the very end. So that it it sort of is incumbent on the learner to start uh, displaying more effectiveness as a learner. Mm-hmm. Um, more than that, there's there's some other pluses that uh, to MOOCs, and that is, I think people often when they say, "Oh, well, you know, MOOC is not going to be as good as a teacher in the classroom," and they have this sort of hypothetical, brilliant Mr. Chip sort of great teacher uh, that that they're thinking of, but what they're not thinking of is the the statistical truism that half of all professors are below average. And average is not often that very good when you're sure. at a, a large-scale university that is putting a predominant uh, focus on uh, on research. So, so MOOCs allow for some of the better teachers and the best teachers to really get students excited. And it's almost like television. I mean, sometimes I, I have to laugh because people will walk into a cafe or something and they'll see me and they'll do a double take if they know me because it's like they really feel like they know me. Uh, sure. Just like sometimes you feel you know a television star. And, hey, whatever it takes to get you to connect with the material, um, if that works, that's terrific. Um, but more than that, MOOCs also provide for mastery learning. That economy of scale of creating large test banks so that people can take tests over and over again. I just don't have the wherewithal to do that in my regular classroom. But mm-hmm. a, a MOOC can provide for that. And 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 so yeah, I, and that's an interesting point. The first point you made about um, the choice, so that you know, every day that a student sits down to watch, there's actually been a choice to actually watch, uh, unless it's synchronous for some reason. But it, by having it asynchronous, the student is in choice at that moment, and hopefully is doing it at a time when they're they're ready to take it in. I think that is a that is an important point. And though I'm and and I've heard stories about this, and and in your typical running of the, I, I noticed you're going to have it up and have it up uh, through uh, UCSD Coursera in October. And so typically, how many students when you offer it like like this? Uh, how, how many students will you have typically, just on average, rough numbers? Well, essentially, we have two thousand students adding a day to the course, so they kind of um, lump up and uh, start now with the, each new session. Um, sometimes we'll have more. For for example, the January session had. Um, around 220,000 students in it. We're, we've been shifting over to a different uh, modality, which is kind of like a soft session version where you can start with pretty much the beginning of each month. It, it begins and 
kind of go along, but if you miss things, then you get shuffled into a, uh, the next month's session. So that's your, your sort of um, very soft punishment there. And yes. uh, it, it seems to work really well. People just, uh, they just flock into the course, and it's not that we're even really doing anything. Students just, I mean, they're so inspirational. They really want to learn. And, and so, okay, and so they go do this, and I guess some of the stories I've heard about some of the MOOCs is the ways in which they uh, support each other. Have you, have you, you know, the, so one of the, the risks of a MOOC is this kind of notion of uh, bowling alone or teaching, you know, that we've got this sort of isolated kind of learning, but you're saying the opposite, that it's inspirational, that they're engaged. Um, where, where are they getting the emotional engagement from? I think folks probably know um, that the forums are really very, very active. Um, there's, there's just so, I almost think that in some ways my in-person class students suffer because they don't have the ability to be talking to uh, Jose in Chile or, you know, mm-hmm. to um, Weiling in, in China, or which is what you can do in a MOOC. Uh, it's... Uh, People are interacting with one another far more uh, than they ever really do uh, in some ways, you know, with respect to the classroom. So it's it's really pretty fantastic, and they're very, very supportive with one another. Beautiful. And so what I'm hearing is that uh, the technology is enabling not only uh, um, the spread of, of really great uh, teaching and learning, but also uh, a kind of inter- interaction with other students. So we've just got a couple of, of minutes left. What else, what else would you like our, our listeners to, uh, to know about your work or, or your thinking? Well, I, I think... One of the, it's sort of counterintuitive, but I think one of our biggest problems in engineering right now is that we are, that we're trying to make it too fun. And, and I know that sounds a little bit odd, but here's, here's the, the thing. Research has shown that we develop passions about what we're really good at. And so... What we often do um, when we're teaching language, we have students practice um, the the different aspects of grammar and you conjugate verbs. If you're learning a musical instrument, you will sit and you'll practice with the scales. If you're learning soccer, you'll practice certain motions, certain movements. Same for ballet. Whatever discipline, you practice. But when it comes to math and science, you do your homework, you turn it in, you never do it again. <laughs> we, we never sort of a, give an appreciation of the, the fact that, hey, that homework problem is really important and you want to learn it so well that you could do it cold, just like a song. You could repeat a song. Yeah. I think we do the equivalent of teaching air guitar a lot of times. I go to conferences and I see all this information about how to make engineering fun. That's like teaching air guitar instead of actually teaching guitar. What I'd love to see yeah. is more emphasis on real, you know, how do you learn well. And just very uh, quickly, what, where can people find out more about uh, your MOOC, your books, and so forth, a website or an email address? Oh, just Google up learning how to learn, and um, 
Terry Sanowski's and my Luke will pop right up. And uh, the book, A Mind for Numbers, is right there on Amazon. So uh, just uh, take a look there. And there's more information at my website, which is www.barbaraoakley.com. So www.barbaraoakley.com. If you're interested in finding out more about these, this fascinating MOOC and, and uh, fascinating uh, that books that uh, Barb has written. Thank you so much for, for being with us um, uh, today, Barb. And um, uh, you've been um, listening to uh, uh, Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to Barb Oakley. Thanks for being with us, Barb. And Help to transform higher education and learn more by going to www.bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, uh, same channel, and we're going to be talking about the the revolution in, in leadership coaching in higher education. See you next week. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.